The readings taken from Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 28, which can be found on page 984 in the Church Bibles. That's Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, We're carrying on last week, uh, from last week, where we left off in Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew, you may remember, was previously known as Levi, and he was a tax collector, which of course immediately means he's a collaborator with the Roman authorities. But Jesus called him as uh, one of the twelve to follow him. And he was with Jesus for those three years of Jesus' public ministry. And he was also with him at that crucial six-week period between Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, when not only did Jesus teach them so much, we read, but um, so much that Jesus had taught them and that they had observed must have all then, post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, have just begun to fall into place. Matthew, like Peter, must have then have got it. But clearly, at this particular point in Jesus' public ministry, before his death, before his resurrection, Peter clearly didn't get it. Now, I wouldn't want to be too hard on them, for after all, it's not every day that God himself turns up on earth in human form with his true identity veiled from everyone. No, they were on a learning curve. And their learning process was gradual. Sometimes they may, for example, have latched on to a familiar word from the Old Testament, like Messiah, the anointed one, the idealised perfect king of the Jews, the people of God, who would one day come. But even when you latch on to a biblical word, have you got a biblical understanding? The one, of course, which is derived from the Old Testament prophets? Or was it an understanding that had become distorted in the first century context of Roman military occupation? 
an occupation that prompted some to conceive of the Messiah as the leader of a military rebellion that would liberate them by force from Roman rule. Not only were some of their ideas perhaps distorted, of course their knowledge was partial too. There was much in the Old Testament that they had missed. It was not on their radar at the time. So the Old Testament, for example, has figures such as the Son of Man, who in Ezekiel and in Daniel is a, uh, is a divine figure who comes to earth. And that is actually Jesus' favourite self-designation of himself. And then another one is the suffering servant that we read about in Isaiah. Some think um, Jesus strongly connects with his mission, but which just a hint of suffering in Jesus' understanding of his mission sets Peter off on his rash rebuke of Jesus. He cannot compute in his understanding how you can have this successful earthly king who liberates the people from occupation by force and yet somebody who, is a, who suffers and who accepts that root of suffering in his mind they don't go together they clash but as um, so misunderstanding and incomplete understanding how hamper the disciples at this particular point but as they are corrected as they learn more and see so much actually happen they after the death and the resurrection get the full picture so if you're, you see yourself as on a journey of discovery about the person and work of Jesus, who he is and what he's done, you may find this helpful. And there are three features I'd like to draw out from this passage. The first is how absolutely focused Jesus is on his mission. Secondly, how he is not deflected from his Old Testament job description, his mission, even if it is from one of those who is closest to him and one who thinks that he is being well-meaning towards Jesus. And then thirdly, how we are to follow his pattern, get a grip and receive our eternal reward. So how focused Jesus is is quite striking. And this covers the response of Peter's to uh, Jesus' question at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus asks his disciples, 16, 15, who do you say that I am? And Peter immediately comes in with verse 16, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus commends Peter. He says, God has revealed that to you. And then verse 20, Jesus sternly orders the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Well, Jesus knows he's the Messiah, so why not tell people? Well, we're about to see what happens while the mission is still in progress rather than in having been completed when a full picture can be seen. The risk 
a misunderstanding on a popular term is very great indeed. So Jesus comes out, verse 21, with the first of four statements of intent that are recorded in the Gospels. And he is purposeful without being fanatical. But this is his mission statement. This is what he has come to do. This is his life's work. And we read, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must must means it is necessary, absolutely necessary. Go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, that's elders of the synagogues and teachers of the law, who together are the Pharisees, and the chief priests who are the Sadducees. They are from the, the, uh, the priestly nobility of uh, Jerusalem. And together, those two groups formed the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling Jewish council. So Jesus is quite emphatic. He must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things and that he must be killed and on the third day he must be raised to life. Jesus is quite clear. He is very focused on what he must do. But why must he? Well, clearly at this particular time Peter doesn't get it. But he did. We know that because of his letters in the latter part of the New Testament, when he wrote after years of reflection. And this is uh, what he writes in his letter 1 Peter 2.24. He says of Jesus, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, in other words, the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. You see, this was the fulfilment of a prophecy given through Isaiah 700 years before. From Isaiah 53, 5 and 6 we read, He, the suffering servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we are pictured as wounded human beings, as wandering sheep, as criminals who deserve punishment. And Jesus is pictured as the substitute who took the punishment instead of us. A crime, rebellion against God, has been committed The criminal must be punished by exclusion from the presence of God. However, on the cross, Jesus, the perfect substitute, was punished by his exclusion whilst on the cross from God the Father. And in suffering in such a way, he was satisfying the law's demands so that justice is done and peace, not punishment, is now the outcome. And so the images of the wounded restored to full fitness and the wandering back on track come into play. And it is the resurrection and after three days rise again, which is the vindication of Jesus' life and teaching. It's the verdict that God gives on him that he was innocent, he was guiltless, he should not have died. And so he's raised. And verification that the cross worked. Our sins can be fully and effectively removed. 
peace with God is now available. And secondly, Christ is not deflected from his mission. He's sufficiently in control not to give way to temptation. We read, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now I'm sure Peter would have been horrified to learn that he was actually being a tool of the devil. Because Peter was an avid, passionate follower of Jesus. But at this point, his understanding was partial. He hadn't realised that the way to victory was through suffering. That Jesus had to die in order for God's justice to be satisfied and for the possibility of our pardons to be realised. To suggest that Jesus didn't have to tread that path was for him an enormous temptation to abort his mission and to go for a softer option. But while it would have been easier, it would have been ineffectual. The soft option, the temptation that Peter unwittingly puts before Jesus is vigorously resisted by Jesus. And then thirdly, how are we to be self-controlled in following him? We read 24, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. In other words, we haven't a hope of getting a grip on our own lives unless we allow him to get a grip of us. We have to recognise his authority and follow him. It's only when he controls me that I can control myself. Without his grip on me, I am out of control. And it's quite helpful to kind of think of ourselves under Christ, as it were, in the cockpit of our life. Um, And we are, um, we have a number of levers. And these ones kind of um, develop. And these things destroy so that's to picture us John Stott is very clear and helpful here in 1984 he wrote this and I quote it at length he pictures us like I've just described in a sense what we are our self or our personal identity is partly the result of creation we are made in the image of God and partly the result of the fall, which is the image of God in us marred or defaced. So the self that we are to deny, disown and crucify is our fallen self. Everything within us that is incompatible with Jesus Christ. Hence Christ's command, let him deny himself and follow me. And then the self that we are to affirm or cultivate or develop and value is our created self, everything within us that is compatible with Jesus Christ. Hence his statement that if we lose ourselves by self-denial, we shall find ourselves. So true self-denial, the denial of our false and fallen self, is not the road to self-destruction, but the road to self-discovery. So then whatever we are by creation, we must affirm our rationality, our sense of moral obligation, 
our masculinity and femininity, our aesthetic appreciation and artistic creativity, our stewardship of the fruitful earth, our hunger for love and community, our sense of the transcendent mystery of God, and our inbuilt urge to fall down and worship him. All this is part of our created humanness. True, it has been tainted and twisted by sin, and yet Christ came to redeem and not to destroy it. So we must affirm it. But whatever we are by the fall, we must deny and repudiate. So we must do that to our irrationality, our moral perversity, our loss of sexual distinctiveness, our fascination with the ugly and the distorted, our lazy refusal to develop God's gifts, our pollution and spoliation uh, spoliation of the environment, our selfishness, malice, individualism and revenge, which are destructive of human community, our proud autonomy, our idolatrous refusal to worship God, all this is part of our fallen humanness. And Christ came not to redeem it, but to destroy it. So we must deny it. And this is the way to live. By surrendering to Christ, following him, we can get a grip on our lives as we allow Christ to get a grip on us. We then deny our false self, And we affirm our true self. If we were to switch to gardening, we're squirting weed killer on that. And we are putting um, sort of nutrients on this. Of course, Christ implies you can hang on to your life. But if you do, you'll lose it. But to end, he invites you to consider these two questions. Verse 30, um, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For the hustings that we had last month, which I chaired, we did let the uh, candidates have a list of the questions beforehand because one of them was uh, deaf and her signers needed all the uh, questions in advance. So they knew what my last question was going to be, except I ran out of time. My last question to them was to be, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? I wanted them to tell us what they thought Jesus meant by it. I could work out which two tracks they could possibly go down, I mean, apart from ignorance and confessing it, which I've not noticed uh, political people are likely to do. They could go most likely down the material-spiritual contrast and say that friendship, love, joy, care and concern are actually more significant than material things. I could get that. I think that was what they most likely would go for. Or would they have gone what Jesus was also thinking, the temporal-eternal contrast, and that it is through him that a whole eternal destiny awaits us? Well, we won't know, will we? And the second question was, or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? To which the answer is, of course, nothing. 
So having discovered that we are a product of both the fall and creation, and in fact, if we're Christians, the recreation in Christ, we discover a balanced, realistic self-image. We can move on from self-acceptance to self-affirmation. It is denying, it is in denying our false self and affirming our true self in Christ that we move from self-centeredness to Christ-centeredness. And the paradox in the Christian discovery is that in losing ourselves in the love of God, we find ourselves. So we've seen three related reasons why the disciple of Christ must take up his cross. One is, for those who want to save their lives will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The second is, for there is more to life than the temporal and the material. There is the eternal and the spiritual. So the last reason why a disciple must take up his cross is that his eternal destiny depends on it, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. So Jesus is saying that judgment will fall on those who have followed their own will. Reward will be for those who follow Christ's will and take up their cross and follow him. As always in the New Testament, we are rewarded by what we do. That is evidence of our genuineness. But only after we have actually been saved by faith, which enables us to do as the Son of Man wishes. So as we draw to a close, we should draw together three strands of thought which Jesus alludes to, but which at the time Peter hadn't connected. And so he didn't get why the Messiah had to suffer. Peter was majoring on just one strand of thought, the Messiah, a Hebrew word for the anointed Davidic king, the rightful ruler of the people of God, Christos, in Greek. But how are we, how are you going to um, get a perfect king when the best examples of the Old Testament, like David and Solomon, were so flawed and the liberation from Roman rule is so limited a perspective? This whole thing is much bigger than the Roman Empire, which would be the largest thing they could have conceived of in their day. And that's where the second strand, the Son of Man, comes in. A heavenly being who comes to earth. A figure that the Jews, uh, since Daniel's day, had given little thought to. But how is this divine, perfect king, coming from heaven as the Son of Man, going to be reconciled to a rebellious people? And that's where the third strand comes into play. The suffering servant of Isaiah. He suffers on the cross to save us from our sins. Being divine, son of man, he is perfect. Being perfect makes him an effective substitute for us. Being, of course, human, he is able to represent us as well as substitute for us. 
The rescue mission will work. Now, at that moment in time, Peter had not joined up the dots. He didn't get it. He hadn't put the Messiah, the Son of Man, and the suffering servant together. But he did, eventually, after the death, after the resurrection, as we've seen in his writings. And he was certainly helped by what happened six days later, at the start of chapter 17, this transfiguration, where the word metamorphosed is the word that lies behind our translated word transfigured. Because six days later, Peter, James and John joined Jesus on a high mountain. More likely Mount Hermon, than Mount, uh, Mount Hermon which was above Caesarea Philippi, than Mount Tabor on uh, the plains of Jezreel. And with them on that mountain, Elijah and Moses, who had lived a thousand and thirteen hundred years before. They're there too. They're there in their glorified state, along with Jesus, who is in his glorified state, or as he really is. And for a moment, Peter, James and John were able to see the Son of Man, not just in his human form, but in his heavenly form, the form which we will enjoy if we take up our cross and follow Christ in the way he's outlined Let us pray. A prayer of St Anselm, who was Archbishop of Canterbury a thousand years ago. O Lord our God, grant us grace to desire you with our whole heart, that so desiring you we may seek and find you, and so finding you we may love you, and loving you may hate those sins from which, from which you have redeemed us. For the sake of Jesus Christ, amen.